Let's pray together. You tell us, O God, in your word that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are Lord. And so I pray, God, that that we would find the power in the name, that we would encounter all the authority in heaven and on earth that's been given to us under your authority in heaven and earth. So, Father, I pray that you will bless this time that we have to gather around your word to be able to explore it, to stretch it, to most of all incorporate it into our lives. Thank you that you care enough about us to speak. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Pretty good. School's back in session. Everybody back in the rhythm, that kind of stuff. Well, school's in session here at Peachtree. We're continuing our series where we're talking about Because I Believe. And as we walk through this series, I've given you a couple of homework assignments. One is to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And if you've already memorized the Apostles' Creed, then we have a second homework assignment for you. But the goal of this series is to be able to connect the dots, to connect what we say we believe with the way that we really live, for there to be a sense of coherence and consistency between those things, that our public declarations would be the same as our private devotion and our core convictions, that all those things would line up with uh, one another. This is how we know in the Bible that faith without works is dead. And as we talked about last week, that truth ignored is no better than no truth at all. And so as we're going through this series, we're using, as I said before, the Apostles' Creed kind of as our roadmap to help us with the guardrails to figure out what we believe and what kind of difference, the so what of what it really looks like in our lives. And so we've got this little back and forth going on between because I believe and what happens as a result. So let's put those up on the screen here. And so we've talked about the first week, because I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I will cherish life as a gift. And because I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, I will give priority and loyalty to Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about this week. Because I believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, I will be available for God to surprise me. That's what Kelly's going to talk about next week. Because I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, I will live for more than comfort and status and security. And because I believe that he descended into hell, I will go the distance for others. Do you see how we're trying to have this hinge to connect what we say we believe and what we really believe that is revealed by our actions? So this week, we're talking about that phrase, uh, because I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, I will give two things, priority and loyalty to Jesus. Priority because he's the only son, and loyalty because he's the Lord. So if you will, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, or your electronic Bibles, or you're too lazy to move or do anything, and you just want to watch it on the screen, that's okay as well. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8. We're going to start reading in the first, the fifth verse. This comes right on the heels of the famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, the message that Jesus gave. And um, before I read the story, I need to help you to enter into the right frame of mind to hear it, because when we read this story, we often mishear part of what is going on. Let me tell you the story, and then let me explain. 
So we used to live in San Antonio, Texas, and in San Antonio, there are multiple Air Force bases, and there's a large Army base, and so a lot of military kind of find their way on the airplanes to find their way back to San Antonio. And so when I would be off and on like a business trip, I would find my way on a plane on the way back, and there were often uh, the women and men who serve our country so faithfully who would be on those flights on their way home. It's late one day. It's probably the last flight from our destination, from our kind of where we're taking off to the destination of San Antonio. And they're kind of holding us at the gate because we're waiting for somebody. And you've probably been in a situation like that where you're kind of grumbling, like, who are we waiting for? Who's so important that we can't just take off? They're late. It's not my fault. It's theirs. That kind of Christian thinking. And... um, (laughs) And so we, uh, we're waiting, and everybody's just starting to get a little uneasy. And so the flight stewardess, the flight attendant said, it felt like she owed us an explanation. She says, I'm sorry that we're still at the gate. We're waiting for a passenger. Um, he's been serving our country in the Middle East for the better part of a year, has not been home, has not seen his wife, has not seen his kids for about a year. And so we thought it was appropriate for us to hold the plane so that he could make uh, the connection. And everybody on the plane feels really small-minded in that moment for what they were actually thinking in their brains. And so the flight attendant said, and so when he does get on the plane, let's greet him in an appropriate way. And so uh, as, soon as, uh, as soon as he got on the plane, I mean, people, everybody in the plane stood up. We started cheering and clapping. And uh, I mean, like grown men were hugging him and embracing him. Uh, grandmothers were like fist bumping him. Uh, he, I mean, he's this tough guy and he's in camouflage and he's got tears streaming down his face and uh, as he makes his way back to his seat. Now, the reason I tell you that story is maybe you've been on a plane, maybe you've experienced something like that, but our natural reaction in general to the men and women who serve our country is quite favorable, that we're very proud that they are there to serve and to protect and to advance the cause of freedom in the world, and uh, we are rightfully grateful for those who do that on our behalf. You need to know that that is not the prevailing mindset of the people when they saw a soldier in the day of Jesus. So when we see a soldier tend to have a favorable perception of that, during the time of Jesus, it was a very different kind of soldier. Israel was an occupied territory. The Romans were in charge of Israel. They were not free. And so a better analogy is, imagine if we had lost World War II, and you still have that same scenario that I was in before, and it's We're being held up, but it's not an American soldier that gets on a plane. It's a Nazi soldier. That's not going to be occasion for an ovation, is it? That's going to be another occasion for outrage. So when the soldier enters the scene in the story today that we're reading from the Gospels, we can't import our favorable feelings about soldiers We have to enter back into what would it have been like to have been in a hostile, zealous, tense pressure cooker of an occupied land. And so let's read today's passage. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him saying, uh, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I? Come and heal him? The centurion replied, <coughs> that's not in the text, that's me coughing because I'm just saying, can a brother get a cup of water up here? I'm, I'm signaling, I'm serious, can a brother get a cup of water? 
<laughs> that's not like some pastor metaphor or code language. There's baptismal water over here, but I don't think that that's exactly uh, appropriate. Ladies and gentlemen, the lovely Francis. Thank you. Did you drink in this first or is it a new one? Oh, click. It's a new one. So it is all me. Where were we? Oh, yes, God's word. Okay. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my service, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, bewildered, flabbergasted, and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great May God not only bless the hearing and the receiving, but also the incorporating and the doing of his holy word. So when someone says, I believe in Jesus, what do we really mean by that? I can tell you what I thought it meant for the longest time. I mean, I grew up in a typical kind of Presbyterian mainline church, and I thought that when we said, I believe in Jesus, it meant that you believed all that stuff that's in the Bible, that you believed certain things about God, that you believed that he was born in Bethlehem, that you believed that he walked on water, that you believed he fed 5,000 people with a sack lunch, that you believed he restored sight to a blind man, that you believed that he walked by a funeral procession one day and he laid his hand on a boy and he came back to life, that you believed that that he died on a cross for you and for me and that he rose from the dead. Check, 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 got it. Nailed it. That's what I thought it meant to believe in Jesus. And I felt like in kind of our traditional church that every week, because we did the Apostles' Creed, I felt like it was kind of like you showed up for this week in and week out. You showed up for kind of like a weekly test. And that the pastor was kind of like the, the teacher and that the pastor would say, let us stand and see how you do on our spiritual quiz. And you would stand up and you would say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And Are you filling in the blanks right? Are you tracking with what's going on? You need to know that that's true. All of those things I believe that are true, but it's not all the story. It's interesting. When I look back on my life, I learned about Jesus the same way I learned about history. I learned about like things like this, the French Revolution. I learned that there were people, I learned that there were dates, there were names, there was artwork associated with it. And just as I believe that the French Revolution happened, the question was, did I believe that the life of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection happened? But what I'm starting to realize is that there is so much more and that the revolution that Jesus came to start is categorically different than any other moment in history. And that you can't even treat it in the same category. In other words, um, let me illustrate it with this. I remember one time... Uh, I was in church, kind of going through the motions, and it came to that point where it's like, hey, let's stand and say the Apostles' Creed. And, uh, but the person who was up front didn't say just that. The person said this. The person who was leading it said, let us stand and say what and in whom we believe. I had two immediate reactions to that. One is, that's really good grammar. And then my second reaction was, that's a game changer. That when you and I say the Apostles' Creed, we're not just 
going through that list of here's what we believe. It's so much more. We're not just getting the facts straight. We are getting the relationship right. And that's a whole different thing altogether. There's a guy by the name of Bob Goff. He's a kind of quirky attorney in the Southern California area. He's written a book called Love Does. And in this book, he chronicles how he kind of came to the realization that he wasn't really loving Jesus. He was stalking Jesus. Here's what he has to say. These are kind of long quotes, okay? So bear with me. He says this, collecting information about someone is not the same as knowing a person. Stalkers are ordinary people who study from afar the people they're too afraid to really know. Jesus said that unless you know him like a child, you'll never really know him at all. Kids don't care about facts, and they certainly don't study each other. They're just with each other, and they do stuff together. What I realized about my faith was that I was collecting information and memorizing things about God. I collected pictures and gathered artifacts and bumper stickers about Christianity, and I talked about knowing Jesus like we were best friends when actually we hardly really knew each other at all. And I memorized Bible verses and the names of the books of the Bible in order and the sequence of a bunch of events as well as who was there. At some point, I had to confess that I was stalking Jesus. I was actually creeping myself out a little, and I realized I was probably creeping God out too. So I decided to stop. Question is, are you stalking Jesus or are you loving him? And so Bob Goff talks about how he needed to change some things in order uh, to do that. He writes this. Wouldn't it be a horrible thing if we studied the ones we loved instead of bonding in deeper ways by doing things with them? I'd never want to get married to a girl no matter how much I studied her. I'd rather take her sailing or fishing or eat cotton candy with her on a Ferris wheel. I don't think knowing what her name means in Greek is going to help me love her more. In fact, they have a name for guys who just study things about a person they like but don't do anything about it. They're called bachelors. (laughs) So I started getting together with the same guys each week, and instead of calling it a Bible study, we call it a Bible doing. We've been at it for 15 years now, and I found there's a big difference between the two. At our Bible doing, we read what God has to say, and then we focus all of our attention on what we are going to do about it. Just agreeing isn't enough. I can't think of a single time where Jesus asked his friends to just agree with him. That's what I thought the faith was. I thought the faith as a student, as a child, was that you're supposed to agree to these different things about God, and that if you agree those things, then you're in. And what I came to discover over time, that it's not about agreement, it's about authority. And the difference between agreement and authority is huge. When you're, uh, when you're an agreement kind of model, you're still in control. You can be like, I agree with that, I don't agree with that, I agree with that, and I don't agree with that. And the question is, what is the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven after you die? But it's not an agreement model. It's an authority model. God is the Lord, the sovereign of heaven and earth. And the question is, what do we respond to that reality? In the story that we read today, there are two kind of key words that bounce back and forth between the end of the Sermon on the Mount and the story that we just read. And they're the words authority and amazement. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished preaching and he sat down um, and he dropped the mic, uh, then Jesus Jesus got to this point where the, the crowds were stunned. It says they were amazed at Jesus because he taught them 
as one who had authority. And some, there, was, there was something different about Jesus and the way that he taught, the way that he communicated, that there was a consistency between what he said and the way that he lived, that it carried weight. And then you just fast forward a few verses and you're in this story that's about authority and amazement. And the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and even though he has a ton of authority, right? He's a Roman soldier that's in charge of at least another hundred Roman soldiers. And he's like, I know what it's like to have authority. I tell somebody to do this and they do it. I know someone else who does this and they do it. He knows about authority. And the amazement actually comes from Jesus. Think about this. The Lord, the God, the maker of heaven and earth is amazed by something. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. How popular do you think this statement was given what I told you about soldiers? This is a pagan, Roman, occupying soldier And Jesus is like, man, I've grown up in Israel my whole life. I've never seen anybody with faith like this. It's an explosive statement. You wonder why they wanted to kill him, right? It was things like this. So what kind of amazing faith did this soldier have that Jesus found so amazing? Two quick phrases. If you have your own Bible, I'd love for you to underline these or jot these two down. The two phrases that really jump out for me in the quality of his faith, the first phrase is this, I don't deserve. I don't deserve. Second phrase, just say the word. I don't deserve. Again, a man with incredible authority, centurion leadership, they're in charge of the whole country, and he's saying, I don't deserve. He did not come in, guns a-blazing, and say, Jesus... I'm in charge, you're gonna have to do this. Nope, soldier comes in and says, I don't deserve. In other words, he has a humility that leads to the right kinds of priorities in life. Just say the word. He has such a high level of trust that Jesus is who that he says that he is and that if Jesus will just say the word, it will happen. In other words, he has the kind of trust that leads to a deep and abiding kind of loyalty. I don't deserve just say the word, priorities, and loyalty. Let me see if I can illustrate the priorities bit a little bit more. And to do this, we're going to do a little math. How many of you love math? Like 10 of you. How many of you hate math? The rest of us. Okay. I'm going to do a little math lesson with you. This comes from Shane Hips. And, uh, and so this is what he says in order to help us to understand what's, what's going on here. I'm going to put a number on the screen here. The value of this number is one. That was not a trick question. Some of you who don't like math, who have been scarred as a child in math and being embarrassed, were kind of afraid to answer that question. I'm hoping you're going to grow in your confidence. I'm not going to try to trick you today, okay? All right? If I take this number and I add a zero in front of it, the value of this number is One. Very good. You're tracking with me. If I had a few more zeros, the value of this number is one. No matter how many zeros I put in front of the one, the answer is and always will be that the value of that number is one. But what if you change the order? What if you change the priorities? If I put a zero after the one, it becomes 10. I heard somebody say one at the last service. I really worried about that person. (laughs) 10. If I had a couple more zeros, it's a 1,000. If I had a couple more, it's 
a whole lot, right? Do you see how this can maybe help us to illustrate the power of a priority? If you put the one in the right place, then everything else that you add behind it increases its value. If you put the one in the wrong place, you can keep adding all of that other stuff, but it doesn't change the value. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you as well. If you try to put your family first in your life above God, above all of the things, you will not be able to increase its value. If you put your career before God, before your family, before everything else, if you do that, it's not going to increase the value. If you put God first, if you put first things first in that regards, then family and work and money and all those other things actually infinitely increase in value. Jesus uh, echoes what is said in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments when you you shall have no other gods before me. The problem is, is that we tend to take all the good things in this world, it's called idolatry, and we put them in the place of God. We put them in the priority. We put them in the one spot when it's supposed to be in a zero spot. And when we figure that out, when we have enough humility to be willing to say, God, I'm going to put you first. And if I put you and your kingdom and your righteousness first, then the value just continues to grow. Does that make sense? Or was that just like a painful math lesson from childhood for you? It makes sense, right? First of all, we have to have the humility to establish the right priorities. The second kind of amazing quality of faith, just say the word. Just say it and it'll happen. That's the deep kind of loyalty that faith calls for. There is a job that has to be one of the craziest job transitions in the world. If you stop and think about it, the President of the United States is the most powerful figure in the world. And then there's one day when you're not President of the United States anymore. You gotta imagine what that's like. Like one minute, you're kind of the center of the universe, all the power, all the authority, all of the influence, all the headache and the responsibility, all of that tiled up together. And then there's, there's a day, it's called Inauguration Day, and then you're not a president anymore, you're a former president. And they only give you two things when you're a former president. You get a library, and you get Secret Service detail. That's it. Used to have this great house, used to have all this stuff, and now, poof, huge change. Got to wonder, what's it like to be a former president? Having sat in that seat, been a part of all those discussions, and then have it change in a moment. Well, former president, number 41, George Herbert Walker Bush, lives in Houston, Texas, and um, so got his library, he's got his secret service detail, he's got about 20 guys on his secret service detail. And one of the guys in his secret service detail has a wife and a child, and the child at about the age of two is diagnosed with leukemia. And so every single member of the social security detail in an act of solidarity and in caring and in being there with this family, they all shave their heads. And former President George Herbert Walker Bush 
at the age of 89 years old in 2013, he shaves his head. And this is the former president with little Patrick, who has leukemia. And this is kind of personal for the Bush family. They know what it's like to lose a child in 1953. They had a daughter named Robin, who was five years old, who died of leukemia. Barbara had an interesting reaction to him shaving his head. She thought it made him look younger, she said. And then you fast forward a few years later in 2016, here's another image of the president with little Patrick, who's doing quite well as far as I can tell. Both of them have a little more hair. Both of them a little older. So let me ask this question. Do you think, do you think that Patrick's family feels the loyalty of the former president of the United States? You bet. Ultimately, when it comes to faith, it's not about your loyalty in God. It's about his loyalty to you. And the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, commits to you, to me, that I'm in this with you. All the power, all the authority but I am loyal to you. Faith is merely trust and confidence that God will be true to his word, that he'll do what he says he will do. That's what faith is. Earlier this last week, I went to uh, the downtown Rotary Club and I got to encounter two business guys whose names were Bill and John. Bill and John have been in Atlanta for a while, and several years ago, uh, they were both struck. They were acquaintances. They were not friends. Uh, they were struck by kind of the, the, the struggle that we have in our community and our nation with the differences between the races. And so they decided that, you know, there's not a lot that they can do, but there's one thing that they can do about it, that if there is going to be some sort of change, it's going to happen through some form of friendship. And so they committed to one another that they were going to enter into um, a friendship, a relationship together. And so they were going to try to go from not knowing each other very well to being deep friends. And so they made just a simple kind of test to see if they could start the journey together. They said, uh, we're going to meet three times or four times together a year. And we're going to meet for like lunch, stay connected that way. And then in the same way, we're also going to choose one time a year where we get together with our families in either one of our homes. And thus was birthed the Atlanta Friendship Initiative, where African-American leaders and Caucasian leaders intentionally build bridges to be connected to one another. It's interesting, Malcolm Gladwell says that the mistake that we made in the Brown versus Board of Education decision was not the integration of schools. He said the mistake that we made was that we didn't think at all about integrating leaders. And because we didn't integrate leaders, we didn't really change the experience in the schools. Bill and John talked about 
how, um, well, let me say one other thing first before I tell you that part of the story. I was so convicted by what I, what I heard this week. I promise you as your pastor that I'm going to find another clergy member, another pastor from another race, a different kind of community, and I'm going to join the Atlanta Friendship Initiative. And Peachtree is a community of leaders. And if this really is about leaders connecting with leaders in ways that show that things could be really different than they are right now, I encourage all of you here today, if you're so inclined, it's not a program, it's not like some big organization, find an acquaintance, start the simple act of making him a friend, committing to those things. And in doing so, let's see if we can change the narrative in our country. If you do that, just call my office and let us know that you did it. We'll tell the Atlanta Friendship people for you. But Bill and John, when they were telling their story, they said this, there was a moment when it almost all fell apart. That they started out and it was kind of going well. And then there was a moment where one of them got busy and they started missing and canceling their times of getting together. And so the other one made an appointment and came over to the other person's place of work with a little loving and holy confrontation and said, what's going on? And the guy said, no, no, I, I, need, you, I need you to understand. And he interrupted him and he said, listen, I don't need your understanding. I need your presence. I need you. And as soon as I heard them say that, the Holy Spirit cut me to the heart. Because I think the Holy Spirit kind of wants to tell us the same thing. I don't need your understanding. I don't need your agreement. I don't need you to fact check me. What I need is you. I need your presence. That's what amazing faith could look like. And in today's torn up world, I believe that people could go from outrage to ovation, that people with the right humility that leads to good priorities, and if we will trust enough to enter into eventually a deep and abiding loyalty with the Lord Jesus Christ, that it really could, it will change the very fabric of the way that we relate to one another. God invites you to be his friend. It's a simple act, and yet it's so profound. And so, yes, there are things to learn, but it's not a mental checklist. It's not about agreement. It's about authority. And so I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. One, stop stalking Jesus and start loving him. And the second thing I'd like you to ask you to do is to rise to your feet, to go ahead and stand, and to ask you to do what that pastor that I saw do a long time ago, and that's this. I'm going to ask you now to say what, but also in whom you really believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.